It is Giving Tuesday, and in that spirit, ahead of our 34th annual Holiday Magic Campaign to support Treehouse for Foster Kids, I wanted to give you an inside look at the Treehouse store. And you go, look, but this is radio. Ah, Yeah, that's why we brought cameras along for the interview with Victoria Kutaz from Treehouse. You can see that interview. Take a look at the Treehouse store at MyNorthwest.com. So, uh, Treehouse headquarters located just south of I-90 off Rainier Avenue. It's where foster youth from our state can come up to three times a year and get up to 20 items every visit. This is especially important when a foster child gets moved to a new home and maybe they can't bring all their items with them. And it's your donations through Giving Tuesday and Holiday Magic that fill that space. Again, Victoria is the program director for resources and operations at Treehouse. It's amazing. It is It is my favorite part of my job is coming down and seeing families come in and youth get to pick things out, do a little fashion show in the dressing rooms and find things that really make them happy and let them express themselves. And uh, it's just it's a really magical space. It really is made even more magical by the fact that in 2016, Nordstrom's design team came in and revamped the space. So you may have heard it called the warehouse, but it's like any other boutique now. Uh, shopping experience that's gorgeous, beautiful, things laid out perfectly, mountains of toys, bookshelves, decor, and more. The space serves approximately 8,000 youth that are in foster care in our state at any given time. Eight thousand. Every year we have tons of folks who are new to our program. This is the first time they're getting a gift or a warm coat from us. And we have families who have been using these services for 20, 30 years as they have new kids come through their home. And it's about more than just getting stuff. Victoria says this is about foster kids getting an experience they might not otherwise get. It's really important to us to be a confidence building program, to be giving kids things that are going to be meaningful to them and that are going to make them feel like they fit in with their peers. They're excited to go back to school in January and talk about the amazing gifts they got for the holidays. So we want to make sure that this is a program that's feels, like I said, like any other shopping experience for our kids. It's all the things that you'd see if you go shopping anywhere else. It's in this space, the Treehouse store, that dreams for these kids do come true. Victoria recalls one of her favorite recent visits from a five-year-old foster youth. I was here in the store just a couple weeks ago and I checked in a caregiver and the uh, youth who was in her care and her fifth birthday was coming up. It was on a Friday and her birthday was going to be Monday. She picked out her helmet. She picked out her bike. She got to choose between the pink bike and the purple bike and she was riding it in circles through the front of the store and her face just lit up and that's that's why i'm here that's why i do this work these are brand new items i saw a stack of razor scooters brand new in their boxes uh we took a a thorough walk through the store and um you know they can do they can carry a lot of the big box items like they have star wars lego sets i was like i need some of that name brand clothing book sets from popular series bikes arts crafts and Anything, uh, clothing galore from infants to older teens. And again, it's your donations and support that keep that Treehouse store going. We have continued to see our demand for our services across the state go up as we kind of come out of the pandemic and people are coming out of their shell, coming back into the community. We continue to see requests for items from the store increase every month. Um, so we're expecting really high demand and we appreciate all the support we can get from the community to make sure that our families have what they need. 
And if you want to take the same tour I went on and hear more from my interview with Victoria, you can head to MyNorthwest.com slash Holiday Magic. You can also donate there ahead of our Holiday Magic event. That starts next week. It is a uh, it's a great program. We're we're just on the the monthly plan. Mm-hmm. Just you know, take a deduction. And I remember how this evolved. It used to be from you know uh, each child telling a story and getting an individual gift. And now, you know, it wasn't the way most people get their gifts. Yeah. And now they get to go shopping like everybody else. Oh, and just go. I would go wild if I was a kid in there because there are so. I, I'm an adult, and I was going. I want that Lego set. I want that pajama set. I want you know. There's good stuff there. And again, whether you can spend five dollars this holiday. Season, or if you're like Dave and you're on a monthly plan, anything helps. You heard her say that the demand is higher out of the pandemic. Chug points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. We found out earlier this month that a concrete column built just this year on the 520 project is already crumbling and needs to be replaced. You have a pretty good view of it if you took the uh, express lanes. And Chris Sullivan, who has developed a a whole new interest in concrete, is going to talk about the (laughs) next steps uh, on this project. I've always loved concrete, Dave. Have you? Ever since my days as a construction guy, pouring it in backyards and things like that. Yes, right. I don't like mixing it. I like pouring. I like no. laying it. But anyway, laying that's up, that's an entirely different issue. Uh, the problem was obvious. As soon as the wooden forms were removed from the pier in October, the concrete was breaking off. The rebar was exposed. The cracks were large. And there was no doubt that this thing would have to be rebuilt. The Washington Department of Transportation's Tony Black says a rebuild program began almost immediately. We've been working with the contractor on a rebuild plan to try and get them to determine the best possible way they can go out there and take that cross beam down, which is the top part, uh, take that part down and rebuild it. So they only need to replace the top part of that. The column is actually fine. It's the top cap that needs to be replaced. They're working on a demolition plan, and hopefully we'll have that in motion here within you know the next few weeks or so. Um, and they're going to demolish it and rebuild the top part of that pier. WashDOT hopes that all the work can be done by the end of the year, and Black says the impact to drivers should be minimal. It will likely take a few a few days, um, and it'll, it'll probably be at night, and we'll have uh, noise notifications and stuff for those who live in the area to kind of give them a heads up and stuff but we're still kind of finalizing some of those dates and times but it's most likely going to be at night and when i first saw this thing a couple of weeks ago my biggest concern was oh boy what is this going to do to our drivers who drive westbound 520 every day because i promised them in an earlier choke point that they would get their second lane back from south uh, to southbound i-5 early next year by the end of february so will this work on this concrete crumbling column delay that from happening? That lane reduction wasn't exactly just for the concrete pier. It was mostly for the work zone areas that are kind of around there. So the plan is for that to still uh, be down to one lane through at least February of next year. So we should get that second lane back in the same time frame that we were looking at. Uh, Another big question of this, of course, is who's going to pay for the mistake? Black says the contractor will eat it. No additional cost, at least for the taxpayers or for the project itself. It's uh, it's already kind of built into the contracts that we have with contractors. that's what it's going to be. It's going to be covered. Just a reminder of what WashDOT is doing here. This column will help support a new concrete flyover ramp connecting 520 and the I-5 express lanes. It's going to be a reversible lane that will switch with the express lanes. It will go from westbound 520 to southbound I-5 in the morning and northbound I-5 to eastbound 520 in the afternoon. Scheduled to open in 2024, about the same time as the Montlake Lid project wraps up. Reversible lane will begin as a bus-only lane, but then it will convert to an HOV lane for all vehicles when the 520 connection to I-5 is complete in about nine years. 
Mm. Any update on the uh, concrete problems with the uh, track supports for uh, sound for transit? transit getting across I ninety? Yeah. No, uh, I'm waiting to get a little bit more on, on that. Uh, the sound transits. Well, if they they had their last board meeting, uh, I think would have been last Thursday, but it was probably postponed because of Thanksgiving. So they may have one this week to find out exactly what's happening there. But I can tell you that one thing that is growing uh, is perhaps okay. Let's maybe start Bellevue to Redmond going yes. as the standalone line as, as you go that. The, as and then as we try to figure out what's happening with getting across the lake uh to, so because if that's there it, why not use it in the interim yeah. uh so that's certainly uh Claudia Balducci who from Bellevue on the Sound Transit Board King County Council there is also very uh, excited about perhaps doing that so we'll keep a very close eye on what they're going to do with that but yeah there's some engineering issues they're working through and concrete issues on getting across the lake so yeah we're watching that really closely. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Tax season will be on us before you know it, and this year there are going to be some changes, which will probably affect millions of people who have those side hustles, like selling things on uh, eBay, for example. Let's go to our tax whisperer. Kenneth Williams with Clifton Larson. Alan, is it fair to say this is going to catch some people by surprise, Ken? Yeah, I think it will, Dave. There are a lot of people that are used to just doing businesses on the side and and reporting whatever income is appropriate, but they've never had that income reported to the IRS on this Form 1099-K, which is uh, has been around for a while, but the IRS just lowered the reporting threshold significantly. And it's going to catch a lot of people in this reporting web that they haven't had to deal with before. So in other words, your earnings on eBay will be reported to the IRS and the IRS will then check to make sure you have reported everything you made. That's exactly right. We have a voluntary tax compliance system. We call it voluntary. But for years, the IRS has looked for ways to require mandatory reporting of income so that they can make sure that you've included everything on your return. And so we see that with W-2 forms and 1099s. And this is just another way of trying to tighten the noose on making sure that all income is being reported. And this was a pretty tight cinch up of that noose. Okay, so what what kind of amounts are we talking about here? What what uh, What's the threshold? The threshold is that Form 1099-K is required for any payments that are handled through a third-party processor, think credit card companies, but also Venmo and Apple Pay and so forth. And in the past, there was a $20,000 threshold and 200 transaction limit. If you were under payments of $20,000 and less than 200 transactions, you just you flew under the radar in this reporting. But... Starting with 2022, that threshold was lowered significantly. So now it's $600, and one transaction is enough to subject you to this 1099K reporting. Wow. Wow. So that is going to affect millions of people then. Yeah, it really will. Now, it's not going to affect someone that just uh, receives personal payments, uh, you know, paying back your roommate for utilities or or pizza money or whatever. But if you've set up an account with one of these services and indicated that there's any kind of business going on, then those payments are going to show up on this 1099K, even if it may not be business related, unless you have the smarts to specifically designate. Some services allow you to designate this is a non-business payment, but otherwise it's going to capture any payment that goes through that that third-party 
uh, payment service. Okay, so wait a second. So if you use Venmo or you use Apple Pay and you're using it to buy a gift for somebody, but you're also using it to get reimbursed or, or be paid for your, your side hustle, then the total amount that went through that, that payment system is reported to the IRS and it's a, then is your responsibility to explain, okay, this was not income, this was just a, a gift, et cetera, et cetera. That's correct. If you haven't separately identified that payment uh, through your service, and some services make that a little easier than others, uh, but yeah, the, the $2,000 payment that you got from your eBay business plus the $1,000 from grandma that you got for Christmas is all going to show up on your 1099K and the IRS is going to be looking for $3,000 of income reported on your return. Wow. That's going to be a nuisance, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And there's been a lot of pushback on this because uh, obviously this affects potentially millions of people. Congress has been under some pressure to change that threshold. There was some legislation introduced earlier this year that would raise the threshold from $600 to $5,000, which would which would help some. Um, but still, it's a far cry from $20,000 and 200 transactions to any, just one transaction uh, if, if the total payments exceed $600 or if that legislation were to pass $5,000. So, yeah, it's, it's significant. And it's driven a lot of people to, to – I, I was just reading an article about a, a, an appliance store uh, down in the south that all of a sudden all of his suppliers uh, no longer wanted to receive payment via Venmo or, or Apple Pay. They all insist on using Zelle because Zelle is, a, is, is excluded from – from these reporting requirements. And so everyone was, uh, all their suppliers were immediately saying, huh. no, we want to get paid this way. Well, so wait a second. They were, they were trying to fly under the radar, but. Uh, why is, why it, is Zelle exempt? Well, the, the difference is that most of the other services, they actually receive the money and then remit it to the individual that is designated. Mm -hmm. Zelle is actually a system that it was created by the bank institutions to transfer money between them. So Zelle actually never holds the funds. And so the way that the rules are written, it's it's intended for reporting by entities that temporarily hold these funds before they're remitted. Okay, I don't pretend to understand that, but it sounds like you accomplish the exact same thing, except it skirts the requirement. Is that, am I reading that right? Yeah. Now, you know, of course, if the if uh, everyone runs to Zelle, there's a good chance that the IRS will look yeah. find a way to, to close that window as well. But hmm. All right. Any other tax changes that we should be aware of for uh, the 2022 tax year? Not some big changes. There are, there are a few things on the horizon and, and some some changes that may affect a small group of taxpayers. But I think, you know, for a lot of our Washington listeners, uh, everybody's still waiting with bated breath on the capital gains tax and what's going to happen there. Yep. And that's still kind of hanging out there. It's now to the Supreme Court. They presented some written arguments uh, in earlier this month. Uh, but it's a bit of a challenge because it's effective if, if it's deemed constitutional. It's effective for 2022. So people would be required to make payments uh, uh, by April of 2023. And uh, Washington State Department of Revenue is all geared up and saying, yep, but we're going to be expecting people to file uh, unless the, the law is, is ruled unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court. Kenneth Williams of Clifton Larson Allen. Ken, thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure. 
Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Modern medicine can save wounded warriors who likely would have died on battlefields of the past. But survival has its price, especially for amputees. CBS's David Martin tells us how some are rebuilding their lives with an assist from people who understand the challenges ahead. I had two choices. One was to sit at home and feel sorry for myself. And the other was to do something with the life that I got. Wounded American veteran and Senator Tammy Duckworth talking heart to heart with wounded Ukrainian veteran Alexander Chaika. So I wear the shorts like you do, mm-hmm. but I have padding. I'm not just showing you. She lost both legs 18 years ago in Iraq and knows what lies ahead for him. This is what happens with, with amputees. We start to you always compare, yeah. You always compare, yeah. Traveling with his wife, Anna, and Olena Nikolayenko of the charitable organization Future for Ukraine, Alex arrived in the U.S. last month to be fitted for a new leg. Come to our office in the morning and we, we start. By Mike Corcoran. He fitted Duckworth with her prosthetic limbs and is now volunteering to do the same for amputees from Ukraine. We have committed to this project half a million dollars of our services because you have to support these people that are fighting for democracy. Before the war started, Alex made his living dancing, tumbling, and teaching. But once Russia invaded Ukraine, he joined the army and was rushed to the front. The country was in danger. There was no thought on my part that I wouldn't join and do the right thing by my country. Last April, a Russian shell cost him his right leg all the way up to the hip. They told me at the hospital that I was close to dying. Did the doctors tell you they were going to have to amputate your leg? I was already uh, unconscious at this time, so I was not aware that they would amputate my leg. And the cut was not a clean one. Six days later, he sees his $100,000 leg for the first time. Like it? Yes. He hasn't stood on two legs since he was wounded. Alex, how does it feel? He told that it's magic. He can't imagine that he has this leg. The next day, he starts learning to walk again. His physical fitness gives him an advantage starting over. That's a D plus. All the parts are designed to make walking as easy as possible, but it's still a lot of effort. There we go. That's CBS's David Martin reporting. And now, at 7.50 from the Jim Ursula Show, it starts at 9. Here's G. Scott. Happy winter. And I hear there's a, a clip of the Denver, of a Denver Bronco yeah. uh, screaming at his uh, quarterback, who happens to be Russell Wilson, mm-hmm. about, um, oh, I don't know what it was about. What yeah. can you tell us about Losing? This? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, he comes off the field, and you can't hear what he's saying, but he is... Uh, being very emotional, and he's towards um, Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson kind of looks at him a little bit, and he's kind of, you know, very passionate about what it is that he has to say. And then he kind of moves on. And then afterwards, uh, Russell said that uh, it was his teammate, Mike Purcell, just kind of coming over to him, trying to get him pumped up, trying to get that spark on the team. And then Mike Purcell was asked about it, and they said, he's like, yeah, I just, you know, I just want to kind of get a spark going for the team. So, 
there it is. They're basically, this this player, Mike Purcell, was not yelling at Russell. Basically, he was just trying to get the team pumped up, trying to get some motivation going. And, and, and Russell stood there and listened to the spark and the attempted move for motivation. And so I guess there's no story there. I mean, uh, there is some time. There is a possibility that the Denver Broncos PR, because there, there is time between when the media comes into the locker room and when, the, when they have access to the players. So there could have been some time that the Denver Broncos media PR probably came and said, hey, this is the story. But that is a wild assumption, and I'm not going to do that here on this show. Well, good for you. Yep. So no story there. No story. Other other than right now, it's looking really good for, and people keep asking me, gee, why do you guys keep caring about what's happening in Denver? Well, if you're a Seahawks fan, you should care because the Seahawks draft pick for the first round is tied to uh, the success and or failure of the Denver Broncos. And as of right now, ooh, life is looking good. If it was to happen right now, the Seahawks would get like the number three pick. Mm-hmm. So this is a good thing. So, well, I'm confused because the 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 better the team finishes, the worse its draft pick, right? Right so in the are, first round. So, are we rooting for Denver to win now? No, 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 no. Oh. We're rooting for Denver to lose. Yeah, the more they the lose, the, more the they better lose. our draft. So, pick right, right. Why is that? I thought the more that was I, I the deal the, because it's oh, tied. That was the deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was part of the deal oh, in the I trade. Mm-hmm. So. Huh? Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's, that's it's, an interesting clause for them to. It's been to. it's been rough in Denver. I mean, I didn't look. I knew that Russell Wilson would not have the success that he had here in Seattle in Denver. I did not predict this. And what is this? Here's this. Right now, the Denver Broncos average 14.1 points per game. That is the lowest point per, uh, per game since the year 2000. And that was the Cleveland Browns. And they were averaging 10.1 points per game. So it's really bad. Like, Russell Wilson was the quarterback that a lot of, and as a matter of fact, I interviewed one of their lead writers for the Denver Broncos the first game of the season. And I asked him, I said, are you guys a quarterback away from being a Super Bowl contender? Mm -hmm. And he said at that time, Absolutely. Oh. The expectations now that we have Russell Wilson is to be a Super Bowl contender. So now, since they've gotten Russell, their points per game has gone down. Mm-hmm. So that means the Seahawks magic wasn't about one guy. It was about either Pete Carroll or the organization as a whole. Huh? I mean, there's a lot of people that has been telling folks that for like 10 years. Yeah. But now, finally, <laughs> folks are seeing it now. Like, oh! So that defense they had that was historic Played a big part. And that's okay, right? Like, it takes a team to it achieve team. anything. Yeah. And Russell it, was good. And the reason why there is so much, you know, shade going is because of the things that he said when he was leaving, the things that he made us believe when he was here. And everybody's catching up going, man, was I gaslit by that ex. I tell you what my favorite is, is when I am on social media after uh, these Denver Broncos and when they lose there's so many Denver Bronco fans that are apologizing to Seahawk fans. <laughs> I mean, I see it all the time. Like, hey, we're sorry. We called you guys the bitter ex. We didn't know. We see now. And I think there's a little bit of indication like, yeah, you know, you guys can't talk that bad about us. We she, talked about Denver Broncos the whole time. We yeah, did. we did. Sorry. Now you're kicking me out. But you know what? I know you, you wanted to talk about the tour of the Treehouse store that I took. And I'm going to join you on the Gian Ursula show. Finally, I get an invite on the show. Look at that. I'm just kidding. I always get jealous when Dave gets invited and not me. But I'll join you at 930 yeah. to talk okay. about it. Yeah. She's got 9 o'clock with Ursula. 
Tuesdays, we go live to Washington, D.C., a New York Times investigative reporter, David Farenthal. David, good morning. And I know that we've talked about this before, but uh, again, we we have a spate of mass shootings. And the question is, will Congress be doing anything about gun control? Uh, I mean, no, I think the answer is no. There will be some talk about it, um, but I don't see, you know, that anything that requires 60 votes in the Senate would require 10 Republican votes. Um, and I don't see that coming again. Remember, there was some small movement on gun control earlier this year. I don't see it happening again, uh, even in the what they call the lame duck Congress now, mm-hmm. which is when the people who already gave, gave up their seats or were defeated are still able to sit around and legislate without fear of the voters for a couple of months. But pre- Republicans, I mean, they are known for being tough on crime. They ran on being tough on crime. Gun control, clearly a crime. So how would they get tough on mass shootings? I think that they don't see, I mean, they obviously they don't approve of mass shootings, but I, I think they don't believe the answer is more gun laws. You know, you hear some of them talk about we need better enforcement of the gun laws we have. Other people talk about arming more people so people can shoot back. Um, I mean, I think that circumstances of two recent mass shootings show you, you know, how ludicrous that is. That they happen so fast, it's hard for anybody to shoot back. Um, but I think mostly they just see a political backlash and any sort of gun control that they're not willing to risk. I mean, I mean, there were acts of heroism at uh, Club Q did involve using a gun to shoot back. But I mean, I'd be fine if you know somebody with a gun shot back and killed the guy before they could kill lots of people. I have no problem with that. But that's it's that's not a policy. <laughs> you know, you you have to do right. something. Something, don't you to to show that you have any credibility if 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 we're not talking about new laws then because we have a lot of gun laws if we're talking about enforcing the existing gun laws do republicans have a plan for for example amping up funding for i don't know the atf or for uh somehow better enforcement of those gun laws I don't see a lot of support for increasing funding for the ATF. The ATF is a little bit like the IRS and that it uh, enforces laws against, you know, that Republicans often don't like to see enforced. So, I, I, and it's been hampered by funding problems, legal restraints um, since 94, since the Republicans mm-hmm. came in and took over then. So I, I don't see a lot of them, you know, using their political capital, especially in divided Congress, to try to increase the enforcement of gun laws. It's but, just the issue they prefer to, to have go away after a few, a few weeks after a mass shooting. But they don't want to see a bunch of mass shootings on their watch, right? And, and if you call for enforcing the gun laws but don't provide the tools to enforce them, then that doesn't seem honest. Well, I think they feel like, it, you know, there is some hypocrisy there. The political costs for them are relatively minimal. We haven't had an election that was in any way about gun control in a long time. I mean, and I mean, if you just look at Uvalde, a horrible shooting that happened earlier this year in Uvalde where all those children were killed. You know, Uvalde voted overwhelmingly for the Republican in the Texas governor's race who was mm-hmm. not in favor of any new gun laws. So even there... It wasn't as salient as other issues among on voters' minds. Well, that's true. If the victims of, of mass shootings do not want stronger gun laws, you're probably not going to get stronger gun laws. All right, let's talk about the um, the possibility of rail strike. It sounds like um, Congress can really does have the power to end this, right? I mean, I I don't know the technicalities of this 1800s uh, uh, Interstate Commerce Act, but it sounds like all Congress has to do is wave its magic wand and it's. Uh, it's a strike over. I think that's right. I was listening to an interview this morning with the head of one of the unions that threatened to strike, and he was saying, you know, look, we want there to be an agreement. You know, we want to deal with the railroads, but if Congress acts, that will end the, you know, we will go back to work, and that will end the risk of a strike. So I do think that's going to happen. As much as, 
it's not as urgent politically as it was before the midterms, but nobody wants to you know, screw up Christmas or have Christmas gifts arrive late because of a rail strike. So I do think there will be something done by Congress, and that will be the end of it. Right. So for the lame duck Congress, they, they have uh, an amazing amount, seems to me, on their plate for a lame duck Congress. Apparently, gun control is not going to go anywhere. So then uh, what about some of these other issues, including yet another debt crisis and possible government shutdown? What are the, what are the moving parts there? <laughs> Well, there's several issues. There, um, to put it, to start with, the sort of more social issues. There's an effort to codify uh, gay marriage, that, which I think will pass. It has the Republican votes to pass in the Senate to make gay, you know, make gay marriage legal through legal action and not through just a Supreme Court decision. There's also the Electoral Count Act reform, basically an effort to change the way presidential votes are counted. So there's not another January 6th. Or not, you know, January 6th doesn't happen the same way again. Um, and then there's the fiscal issues. Number one, can they fund the government? Yeah, I think that will happen. But, you know, what we're hearing is that maybe another, you know, it'll be like right before Christmas that they'll do it. They never do anything except on a deadline. Right. And then the debt ceiling. You and I remember the debt ceiling from 2011. Yes. You know, the, this thing that, you know, Republicans in Congress can hijack to try to force the country into default that there aren't more spending cuts. Changing that in a material way would probably require 10 Republican votes in the Senate. Republicans don't seem inclined to go along. So, you know, I thought maybe the Democrats could put that to bed and not have a repeat of when the Republicans used it to bash Obama over the head. But it doesn't seem like they're going to. It seems like we're going to get to hear about that again in uh, in 2023. And then I I heard there was a holdup in the Defense Authorization Act because uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, as part of his campaign for House Speaker, wants the uh, wants to stall it until the next Congress takes effect so he can strip the Defense Appropriations Act of some of these woke military policies. Can you, t- can you tell us more about that? Well, I think, that, you know, McCarthy, as we talked about, is on really thin ice. He's already, you know, if you look at the, what people have committed to do now, he doesn't have the speakership. There's five people. It would only take five people to take it away from him, and there's five people who say they won't vote for him. Really? But he's now trying to do everything he can. Yeah, and this is Congress. They can all change their mind in yeah. a second. Um, so he's trying to do everything he can to sort of uh, placate the right wing. And, you know, that means taking, you know, taking on these sort of big social issues that play well on Fox News. So I kind of think that's going to get passed. And I don't think it'll be a real holdup, even if it does go into the next Congress. Um, but, you know, look for McCarthy to do a bunch of other stuff that sort of is very showy, but without a lot of substance to show that he's with the right wing who's become, you know, focused on these issues. So who else is seriously in the running then? That's the thing. There's no one else in the running. Okay. You know, and they're just using this as, you know, people in Congress, how many times have we heard people say, there's no way in heck I'll ever vote for this thing. Never, 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 never ask me again. And they change them the next day. So those five people who said they won't vote for McCarthy, they'll change their minds, or at least one of them will change their mind. You know, they're just holding out. Okay. And this just broke on Politico this morning that the Democrats want to uh, kick kick Iowa off the election calendar, or at least prevent it from being the... the uh, the first in the nation uh, primary. You know anything about that? Yeah, I mean, and this is something that's been talked about every time, but especially with some urgency after you remember the complete botch job their Iowa Democrats did on the caucus last time. We still don't really know who won the Iowa caucuses because it's like, you know, a bunch of people standing in a room, they're counting heads and writing the names down on a napkin. And right. It just, it's a, it's that's a the way they do it in Iowa. It's too big a state, you know, there's too many people, it's too important to do it, like, you know, basically in the back of a napkin. So uh, if I was going to continue doing it the way they do it with caucuses, people have often said they want New Hampshire to go first, or even a state like South Carolina or Nevada, a place that looks more like the country rather than Iowa. 
I don't know. I feel like Iowa always wins these battles anyway. And and the voters there are prepared for this. The voters there, you know, no matter how terrible the system is for counting those votes, those voters are engaged and they're good at, at like engaging with presidential candidates. Yeah. If you throw it in the lap of some other state, those voters aren't going to know what's coming. I remember covering the Iowa caucuses one year and, and I believe the the votes went to whoever had the best cookies at their table. It was an interesting I mean, way. like. It makes cheer, high school cheerleader elections look well run. Yeah, I mean, I it's, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> but it was delicious. David Farenthold <laughs> from the New York Times. David, thank you. Thank you. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.